Have you ever wondered if you could be offering a faster, less buggy application experience for your customers? With Raygun Application Performance Monitoring, you've got all the information you need right at your fingertips to find and fix errors and performance problems across your tech stack down to the line of code. Raygun makes it easy to monitor the impact of your performance improvements, quickly identify and resolve issues, and see how your code performs in the hands of your customers, saving you time, money, and sanity. Visit Raygun.com and join thousands of customer-centric software teams who use Raygun every day to deliver flawless experiences for their customers. That's Raygun.com to get started on your free 14-day trial. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And Reverend Billy Hollis is here with us. Hey, Billy. Hey, Carl. Didn't know I was going to come in. I thought you guys might do some intro stuff first. <laughs> I was just kind of listening. <laughs> we are going to do some intro stuff, but my better know framework today, uh, I want your comment on. So, I guess... Uh, hi, Richard. Hey, man. <laughs> You know, we're in a weird situation right now. We're recording just before the election for publication after the election. Right, right. But we're not going to talk about the election. No, there's no point because there's, there's nothing no we know. Nothing at all. Uh, every single news outlet, including those that are reputable, uh, is just hashing over stuff. There's just around no information. And around and around and, yeah, around. around and around. I'm impressed with how much early voting has happened in your country this year. This is probably going to be the biggest turnout in history for voters, mm -hmm. I think, anyway. Not a bad thing. Yep, not a bad thing. All right, let's get going with Better Know Framework. And uh, Reverend Billy, if you could just stick around and offer your two cents. Okay. Play the music. All right, dude, what do you got? All right, so this is, I found this in the Visual Studio Marketplace, mm. and it's fairly recent. It's a XAML styler from what? a company called Zavalon, X-A-V-A-L-O-N. It's had 93,000 installs and 49 mostly five-star reviews. It's free. XAML styler is a Visual Studio extension that formats XAML source code based on a set of styling rules. This tool can help you and your team maintain a better XAML coding style as well as a much better XA. I don't know. I think they stopped writing at that point. Um, <laughs> but I wonder, I'm wondering, I mean, you know, it's just formatting. It's just I, I was, showing. I, my, my first thought was their style to XAML. <laughs> yeah, well, this isn't about style, you know, style sheets or style properties or anything. It's about right. formatting it in Visual Studio so that it looks nice. And I'm wondering, do we need this because we don't know how to write clear-looking XAML? Be yeah, because tab is hard. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> why? 93,000 installs. There's a, there's a lot of... In my experience, when I look at XAML, there's a fair amount of, of laziness in streaming out long lines. And, right. and and then you get XAML from somewhere and you paste yeah. it into the XAML you're working on. But the indentation is different because it's operating at a different level. A lot of people don't bother to fix that. 
And right, it's right. much, That's- much easier to flow through it if it's all consistently formatted. So I see the value in this. I'm a skeptic when it comes to extensions of this type. Uh, I don't like to just have two dozen things that I have to install every time I create a new machine. But right. I see the value here and I would probably try this out and see just how much how much good it does. Yeah, I got to uh, give the caveat that I have not tried it out. And uh, it's been a while since I've done some XAML, probably when I was working with you, Billy. But um, the, uh, the, the, the thing about this is, is that, as Richard says, you know, it, you just get into the habit of pressing return, you know, when you have a new property or a binding or something. Yeah. Just uh, don't string them out so that we have to scroll right. But scrolling right is like the most painful thing in Visual Studio. And now Visual Studio has a wrap function. So, And, and the biggest waste of time. No, I, I think Billy hit it there. It's not your code isn't formatted well. It's that you just... Re- you cut and pasted a huge chunk of code or you're looking, you're, you're taking on a library and now you have to do some work on it. And so yeah. you need to apply your formatting to a huge amount of XAML all at once. Well, the, the, the comments are interesting. The probably the most popular comment is visual studio should just do this. <laughs> it's a good point. Good point. You know? Well, any, we yeah, anytime that something is that useful, Look, I know those Visual Studio guys have a lot of, lot of stuff to do. They have a lot to mm-hmm. work on. But yeah. I agree. It, it, it's really so much better if something does have a clear use for them to do it. But to be honest, there are things that I kind of put higher on the list than that, like getting better drag and drop capabilities for the grid layout. Most yeah. drag and drop capabilities in the XAML designer right now are worse than useless. And I know they've looked at various things that they can do. And I think eventually they will. I would put that higher on the, on the priority list than formatting XAML. Yeah. Well, that's what I got, Richard. Who's talking to us today? Gravity comment off of show 1618. The one we did with Mr. Billy Hollis, who's not a reverend, uh, about UX design, which we've talked about many times. So let, let me rephrase that. It's the latest show we did with Billy. That yeah. wasn't a special show like 1700. Yeah, and uh, always a great conversation as usual. Thinking more about the UX uh, as improving value in software, you know, the way to think about maintenance and so on. And Ian Williamson responded this two years ago, at least from 2018, uh, with great episode, but with some trepidation. I'm going to offer dissenting opinion on the part where he discussed. Uh, web design. It seems to me that we are well past the point where the current conventional wisdom is that web pages should be crowded. I think it's quite the opposite. In fact, too many of the today's quote best love the air quotes around the best, uh, designs are desktop hostile. Yeah. I like that line too. <laughs> With a few unreadably giant words separated by immense amounts of scrolling and uninformative images. Frustration with being unable to skim or scan a page to find a thing I'm looking for is the main reason I leave pages in frustration in favor of the next results in my search. And I hope the pendulum swings back to include usability of both mobile and desktop screen sizes. Well, I certainly think he had a good point there and that there are a lot of public facing websites that the trend has become. Let's be very open with great big images and big text and, and things. And, and I, it's almost as if there's just an overcorrection there that yeah. we had mm-hmm. things crowded and then people got the idea, well, we shouldn't do that. So they flipped to the other way. They need, they need to find a balance. But my main comment to that would be when I, when I talk about crowded web apps, I'm referring more 
to internal apps that I see that are done in the browser, but they are basically desktop apps. They seem to have the same crowding problems that they've always had. The the people just, the developers of them just cram so much stuff in on them. So I take that point and I think he's right about that, but I don't think that that, that suggests that the uh the, the internal corporate apps don't have that problem. I think they still do. I, you made almost exactly that comment two years ago to that comment from Ian, except you added one other line, which I adored, which is many of these pages look like they're trying to win design awards instead of addressing the needs of their users. <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> that's a pretty consistent problem among designers. You know, it's an interesting thing that I, I found out recently by watching a session by – Jacob Nielsen, if you know who he is, he's one of the foremost designers in the world and co-owner of Nielsen Norman cons- uh, Design Consulting. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. and, and, and Don Norman, his partner, is the author of some of the seminal books on, on design. And he says that we're increasing the number of people who are designers in the sense that that's the primary nature of their job by a mm-hmm. factor of 10 about every eight or nine years. Wow. And that's that's very, very rapid growth. So, of course, if you have that kind of growth, you're going to have a lot of prescriptive stuff. You're going to have a lot of trend stuff. You're going to have a lot of people trying to look cool and yeah. attract attention. And I think that's that's one of the side effects. Uh, that's not the only trend I've seen. I've seen many design trends that tend to come up as a as a fad and then fade away. And designers that do things just to, to attract attention to themselves. That's a real pet peeve with me. There's a, a fine line between attracting attention to yourself and having just good grasp of basic contrast to uh, convey information. Case in point, we were, uh, before we started recording, we're using Zencaster. And um, uh, Billy wanted to update his bio, which I have yet to read, by the way. Uh, he wanted to update his bio. And I said, just paste it into the uh, chat, you know. And he's like, where is that? And I said, well, it's at the bottom page. You're like, I can't find it. And looking right at it, right? And so I typed in hello. And then, of course, it popped up on his screen. Carl says hello. Oh, there it is. The problem is it was so low contrast, I didn't even see it. Right? So you, there is a fine, fine line here. It's like you don't have to – everything doesn't have to scream at you. But things that are kind of important, we have to be able to see. Yeah, I did a uh, – I put up a, a tweet about – a fe- page on FedEx recently that had a similar problem. Um, oh, and, horrible. Yeah. Did you see that? And um, I've used the FedEx, the, the FedEx site and the place terrible. where you actually are supposed to paste in the tracking number is the colors are chosen in such a way that the contrast is very poor and it doesn't stand out. It's the one thing on the page that you need and it stands out in a way. And there are other things that do stand out. Strange yeah, sense of motivations. St- hey, Ian, you kicked off some FedEx. great conversation two years ago and today. So thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music to Code By is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code By, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on the Facebooks because we publish every show there. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music to Code By. And you can follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. Send us a tweet and uh, you know, make sure that you – Bold those uh, high contrast statements. Please. High, high contrast, contrast. Yeah. <laughs> please, because we're you know our eyesight's failing, we're, and uh, we're in our fifties now. Things are hard. in our fifties. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> anyway, uh, Billy, I'm going to read your uh, updated bio here. Billy Hollis is an internationally known UX design generalist, software architect, and team leader. He's also authored or co-authored over a dozen books. He's a longtime speaker at major tech conferences with over 400 sessions on software development, IT practices, and UX design. He leads a team of world-class multi-platform developers at Next Version Systems, where the team creates and implements trailblazing UX designs for companies from Fortune 100 down to medium-sized technology companies. Billy has also done video courses for Pluralsight and LinkedIn Learning. His latest course on LinkedIn is How to Interview Software Developers. Wow, there's a 90-degree turn for you. It is, but I mean, it, it, I think it's a worthwhile area. I mean, look... I, I can rant about bad design all the time, and I'm sure people get some level of pleasure about that. But I've kind of recently <laughs> discovered in some of the talks that I've had with people that some of the soft skill kind of stuff, I mean, I've, I've kind of been around a long time, learned a lot of lessons, made right. plenty of mistakes. And so the ability to project some of that knowledge has been more of a of a focus for me in about the last year, year and a half. Mm. Yeah. We've, we've, uh, Covered those topics, uh, soft skills topics a lot on .NET Rocks over the years. And, uh, I, I actually learned quite a bit about interviewing developers just from our guests and, you know, let's, uh, let's get back to bad design. Hey, have we picked on FedEx enough? Because I, I tell you, man, <laughs> I don't know what angry. it's like now, but I, I used to, that, that website used to make me so mad that it was so poorly designed. And yet one of the cornerstones of business. In the world, not just in America, but in the world. And it's, there doesn't seem to be any stopping it. And I don't understand that. And we can kind of marry, in in a sense, the subject of bad design and the subject of soft skills. Because, well, you've no doubt heard this. A lot of developers now, and designers for that matter, when they build sites like FedEx, they don't really do a lot of usability checking. They don't really go to the users to try to find out how they do it. And you think about mm-hmm. FedEx, they would have to go out and find just general consumers. And and they just typically don't take the time to do that. And there seems to be an attitude among quite a lot of them. And you've heard people say this, I'm sure, that they say, well, users don't know what they want. We have to yeah. build something and show them. Yeah. Well, look, I'm indebted to Alan Cooper for motivating me to really push back against that. He said, and I quote, it's a cop out. And and I agree. But it made me think about why do I think that that's a cop out? Because I've never done it that way. And and what I came to understand is that the ability to work with the user and listen to them and understand their job and then translate that into software via design That's a set of skills that reinforce one another. And what those people are really saying, if they say, well, you have to go build something, is that they don't have that set of skills and they're not interested in developing those skills. (laughs) I mean, I think implicitly they believe they just can't learn to do it. I think Mark Miller's uh, uh, course, seminal course on uh, the, the science of great UI, which, you know, unfortunately is is not all that accessible and visible, but Steve Smith's company uh, has that online. We'll put post a link to it. I, I think it should be required viewing for any software developer. He just, he just sums up so uh, succinctly how these 
elements of UI. Just you, you know, you don't have to be an artist, but the, but just spacing things out and making the most important thing that you have to do there the highest contrast thing. Um, the little things like that are just so important. And I'm coming back to FedEx. Yes, I'm looking at you. The FedEx site looks beautiful till you actually need to log in and ship something. And then there's this little Java looking <laughs> applet kind of gray box with a purple outline that I'm, I'm, I'm serious. I looked at this for a minute and a half before I saw the login button. Now my user ID comes up in it and a password comes up and there's a big important kind of uh, exclamation mark for best results. Please disable your pop-up blocker. Well, it is disabled. It didn't even know my block pop-up blocker was disabled. And now there's big, you know, there's little purple buttons everywhere with question marks and stuff. And the login button is actually not the biggest thing there. There's no margin around it. I couldn't even find it. To make matters worse, when you hover over the login button, like there's no change. It doesn't like turn to a link or anything. So I don't even know if this does anything. Oh, uh, you know, don't get I, me that, started. That sort of stuff is everywhere. And, and I consider it kind of inexcusable. I, I, I've seen Mark's session, by the way. I, I've yeah. seen him create, uh, do that at, at conferences. And I actually have one that's in the same vein, by the way. It doesn't copy yes. Mark's, but it's in the same vein. And I did it in, uh, at NDC London in January, just before yep. the whole world clamped down. And it's, uh, it's available on YouTube. People can search Billy Hollis London and find it. It's got, I think it's coming up on 9,000 views. It's doing pretty well. And it talks about how the visual system and the cognitive system impose limits and constraints about what people can do and how right. you go, how you make mistakes if you don't respect that and how you can fix some of it. And that is some pretty basic material. And I think that developers can learn it. Absolutely need to know it. Because what, when they, when they, as I said, when they claim to, that they have to build something, they're admitting they don't have those skills. They're, they kind of give up and don't, don't try to learn them. They think that, oh, well, you know, I can't do it. I don't think other developers can do it. And that's, that's just wrong. Or they should. They don't think they should, right? You got to hire a designer to do that, right? That's, that's a problem in some cases. But I mean, look at all of the, the, what they're leaving on the table by not, by not doing this. Yeah. I've been spending a fair amount of time in the last year or so looking at the return on investment of, of UI design. And I've actually done quite a bit of that over the years. But what I did about a year ago is I was talking to this big group of about 40 people and all of them were, they, they usually were involved in development, but they also had management responsibilities. And some of them were only, only had management responsibilities. So I, I wanted to go into that group and say, okay, here's why you want to do this stuff. Here's why you want to do good UX design. There's a definite return for it. So I created this spreadsheet that takes things like the number of users and how much they use the software and how much they cost and stuff like that. And then it uses a pretty conservative estimate of how much better software can speed them up, can improve their productivity. So if you've got all those things, the formula for money saved is very straightforward. And if you've got anything over 100 users, you'll get up into seven figures pretty easily. So we, wow, need, yeah. we need to put a link to that spreadsheet it's an, just an Excel spreadsheet in the show, in the show notes, so that people can get that and fill their own numbers in. And, yeah. and I think that they'll really be impressed. You're talking about 
high six or seven figure amounts of money annually that you're leaving on the table by not doing a better job for your users. Now, FedEx, of course, doesn't pay the price in terms of of lost labor because the people that are using it don't work for them. But they do pay for it in terms of people getting frustrated or making mistakes or things like that that they have to deal with. So the spreadsheet also talks about errors. Uh, one of the one of the big projects we've worked on in the the uh, uh, the last couple of years has uh, only about a dozen users. But the purpose of the system was to prevent errors that typically cost over a million dollars each. And which, wow. and which typically happens, happens several times a year. So just preventing one of those errors would easily pay for all the, all the design and development work. So there's a huge amount of money being left on the table by, by people who aren't respecting these capabilities to go out there and figure out how to, how to do things that speed up the users and keep them from making mistakes. That's by the way, where a lot of that visual stuff comes in. Yeah. You speed up users by understanding how they're going to see things. You prevent mistakes by using good visualization and, and not, not deceiving them with things like making things look like buttons when they're not buttons and, and stuff like that. So yeah. all of those visual things tie into the ability to make the software generate a greater return for the company. And I don't feel like developers are tied into that. Oh, I guess I should mention, since I talked to you guys earlier, I've got, I've had a fair amount of work that's been uh, pushed off into first quarter and second quarter of next year. Mm -hmm. And as a result, I have more time on my hands than I, I usually have. And I, and I decided recently what I would try to do is dedicate, oh, let's call it a half a dozen sessions between now and the end of the year to helping companies see some of that ROI. And so right. if the viewers want to, to stand in line, get one of those slots, we'll spend maybe half an hour on a web session and I will walk through the spreadsheet, put their numbers in, let them see for their circumstances what, what they're losing, what they're not getting because they're not not doing design as as well as they could. Once I understood that it all comes down to efficiency, mm -hmm. how long is it going to take your user to look at your user interface and figure out what buttons they need to push, what inputs they need to put in? And the sooner, you know, the easier you can make that for them, the more money you're going to save. Billy's right. It comes down to actual loss of revenue. And in some cases, loss of customers. They'll be like, screw it, I'm going to UPS. <laughs> yeah, and if you make a software package or software as a service in, in some sense, then no doubt you have competition. And if people get frustrated, that's one of the major reasons that people junk who they're using now and switch to a competitor is because they just don't understand how to use the software efficiently. They, they believe that the other software is better. Now, sometimes... That they think the other software is better just for aesthetic reasons. And that's unfortunate. But in essence, what you want to do is get both the aesthetics right and the interaction right. And the aesthetics then becomes kind of a proxy in users' mind for quality of design. And, and so if you can back that up with good design, then you've got a really good one-two punch there. You know, there's an interesting ROI on the SaaS side here. Recognizing that every time a user clicks on a button that makes a call back to the what cloud service that runs that app, you as the SaaS owner are paying for that. They're paying a flat fee per user typically. And so the more lost clicks they make, the more money it costs you. 
That's a that's an excellent point, and I'd never thought of that before. But yeah, consumption of resources. I tend to think more in terms of mistakes made and greater training and people abandoning the product. I was thinking, you know, on, on the FedEx scenario, it's how many folks give up trying to figure out how to do tracking on the website and call for a tracking, which costs hmm. FedEx money. That phone system, that person on the other end, like you they're going to save a ton of money if it's easier to use the web yeah, and, and not just because you make them wait. And in the more package realm, and I think this is true in software as a service too, if you offer tech support for a lot of this stuff, mm-hmm. then then one of the major savings that you have if you are some kind of commercial software provider is that you can significantly reduce your tech support. And I have found that especially in vertical market software packages or vertical market software sites, there tends to be things that users do that causes behind the scenes problems. Right. And some tech support rep has to go in there, not just advise the user what to do, but go straighten it out and get everything back on track. And that's expensive. That's really expensive. I have worked in with groups where we sort the tech support tickets into categories, map those categories to a feature, and actually every sprint, there's one tech support reducing you know, task added. It's like, hey, this is now the most popular tech support call. Can we improve this to reduce that? And where the metric of the success of that change will be the number of tickets next quarter on the under that topic. Oh, I think that's an excellent process. Ex- excellent, excellent attitude. It, it worked. And it, and RO, the thing is, the ROI was so coherent because we'd already set a dollar value for each ticket process. Like we knew where that number was. Right. So it didn't, it didn't take very long to say, hey, if we, if we cut this in half, it's this much money in a quarter. Like it, it adds up very fast, but that, that just meant organizing tickets and sort of recognizing that software can reduce these. And, and that points out something that if somebody's going to think about and get into the ROI area, one of the first things they've got to do is figure out what the metric is for, mm-hmm. for what kind of throughput that, that they got now and what kind of, what, what the improvement might be later. Maybe that's number of orders processed per hour or items picked and packed per day or something. So you you need to know what that is. And any decently constructed system right now has a means to do some reporting and find out what that is, find out what that number is. So when you first start the project in which you think design is going to make a difference, then you want to make sure that you know what your metric is and then measure it six months or a year or whatever into the pro after it's been adopted and then see what the improvement is. And we see I don't think we've seen less than 10% in any right. place we've ever gone. And we've seen as high as 40. And if you start to see those numbers and you could go through that spreadsheet and see what the, what the, uh, what the, the, the return on that is. I mean, if you just say, for example, I've got a hundred users and I say 10%, you've just say 10 full-time equivalents. Yeah. So mm-hmm. understanding what your metric is, is an important thing. And one of the most overlooked things when people go into it, because you know, everybody's excited about doing design. Design's fun. This is some of that analytical stuff that we're supposed to be pretty good at. So right. we really ought to do it. But, but everybody's so excited about doing something new in design and, and they're kind of hesitant. They're a little bit worried that maybe they're not going to be up to this. So th- they tend to focus in on those design aspects. And, um, uh, I, th- I think they need to not forget the analytical aspects because that's what makes you look good in a year. If, yeah. if the word gets around that you just saved the company a million and a half dollars, that has direct impact on your career. 
Yeah, this is sort of hypothesis-driven software, too, which I always like better anyway, that we have a set of metrics, we create a hypothesis to adjust those metrics to the positive, reduce costs, increase sales, like whatever that may be. Then we act, apply the code, put it out in the field, measure again. Yeah, that's and that's kind of what I advise is if you don't get the kind of returns, improvement, or whatever that you thought you were going to get. Now that tells you something about you missed the target on design. And now you can yeah. go back and maybe see where you missed it. Well, and I think it's very interesting in this terms of just getting a handle on, do we have a knob? Like, do are we able to adjust this figure? Do we know what, what makes it change? Yeah. Uh, you know, and sometimes it's, you know, coding changes. Maybe it's a, a marketing change. Like there's any number of ways that you can improve those things. And and I know this probably to the audience feels kind of dry because that's, you know, we're not, we're not analysts. That's not, that's not what we got in this business. But somebody in uh, every, almost every org I go to has that bean counter mentality. And if you tell them, mm-hmm. look, design saves this kind of money, they'll push back on that. Their, their imagination does not extend. Mm. Even today, I mean, these people in the smartphone era and all the devices they have ought to be tuned into a, a little bit more to the importance of good design. But and, and what I find is I go into a to a place and I talk to them about design and I do some of those sessions about how the brain sees things and such. And I will convince 90% plus of the people there that design will pay back and that it is a, 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 it will enhance competitive advantage and all those things. But there will be somebody that just is yeah. cynical about it and doesn't sure. really think that, that, that you can do it. And unfortunately, that person is usually in a fairly senior position when it comes to spending money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey, guys, uh, but- hold that thought for just a second while we hear this very important message. Hey, Carl here with a very special offer for music to code by. You can now get the whole 20 track collection for $19.99 while electrons last. Go to my new store at pwop.e-junkie.com. That's pwop.e-junkie.com. And get it now before I change my mind. All right, and we're back. It's .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. That's my buddy, Richard Campbell. Hey. And that's my other buddy, Billy Hollis. And uh, we're talking about the return on investment of good design. Um, yeah, not just XAML, good design everywhere. And Billy, one of the things you're really known for is walking through this world and finding examples of bad user interface or user experience, UX. And I just wonder, you know, if... If anything has really uh, struck you uh, to the point where you needed to take a picture of it recently. Um, yeah, there are several things on Twitter. I have to go back through them to look. Uh, but I, I mentioned the FedEx site, which which is one of the more recent really bad examples. Yeah. Um, we're, we're gonna and your Twitter edit. handle is this is pointless, right? No, what, no. The, the, the Twitter <laughs> handle for that stuff is at Billy Hollis. Oh, okay. At this is pointless brings out my cynical side. I, I do put bad design there too, no. but only if I'm going to say something really snarky about it. Okay. I'm, I'm trying to remember the non-cynical side of Billy Hollis. I'm just thinking about that for a minute. <laughs> dig in there. Where does that look like again? Give, uh-huh. give me just a moment here. Let me flip through because, <laughs> see, I can go on Twitter and look at 
all the sessions that have all the things in my profile have media. And that's how I find out when stuff is bad. Okay. I'm looking through your Twitter feed right now, too. Sorry, I'm stuck on this is pointless because it's so brilliant. <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> well, that's what I thought I'd look at first. And, and oh, Publix. Publix, yeah. I, 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 I beat up on Publix a little bit. Um, and I, it's kind of hard to see <laughs> the difference between bad design and just bad implementation sometimes. Because if things go wrong... It's kind of your design responsibility to figure out how to fix that. So yeah. I'm on, what am I on here? I think this is Nordstrom. Green, Greenwise, ground, dot, Oh, dot, yeah, that was, that was the Publix site. And look, I yeah. like Publix as a company. I think Publix is easily the best grocery store chain around. But I looked at their site and I looked at their app and they make some of these common problems. Amazon does this too. The product descriptions are all cut off so that I can't really tell what the product is. Right. The and usually titles. the most important part of the product is the last word. Is the beef. last word. Ground yeah, beef. It's beef. It's beef. It's, you know, or coffee. <laughs> and, you know, they'll yeah. say something like hand-selected artisanal whatever. Duh, you know, duh, they'll put duh. all these meaningless adjectives on there. But then that chops off the word coffee. So, you know, hand-selected what? So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, I see a lot of that. But I have one on this is pointless. Uh, well, I spent about half an hour picking out stuff on Nordstrom. And okay. I get to the end and I go to check out and I've got kind of the little screen cap. It says, we're sorry. That was unexpected. Please try again. <laughs> well, I'm going to be cute with your error message. Yeah. Well, uh, why is it? Okay. So I did try again several times. But the fact of the matter is, when I hit that error, nothing, it was, it's gone. It's You're just done. never going to yeah. work. I'm never going to be able to. And so I, did, I got on the chat. There's a chat now button. And so I, and, and I get on there and the person at the other end says, well, you need to go clear all your cookies and clear out your uh, cash. Oh. Well, no, I'm sorry. I'm not going to do that to buy stuff from you. Yeah. Number no, one. What you just two, said to me was go shop somewhere else. Yeah. Number yeah. two, I don't <laughs> want to spend 30 minutes finding all that stuff I just tried to shop for and putting it back in my cart. Yeah. And number three, I have zero confidence that if I do all that, it'll work right the next time. I have no confidence yeah. at all. So that that kind of thing is, is far too common, even among fairly uh, uh, fairly well known retailers. So let's see if I can find the others that I. I, I'm I'm looking at one right here from Billy Hollis, uh, your yeah. Twitter. It says what the program says, and it says security override required. And then oh, there's yeah. text: the OAuth token is not valid. It may be stale or corrupted. Do you want to override default security protocols and allow access without current credentials? Clicking no will abort the current request. And what users see. Unnecessary click required. <laughs> the ouch cracking is not salad. It may be stalled or called Raptor. Do you want to go ahead and do what you wanted to do? Clicking no will keep you from doing what you want to do. Yes or no? Yeah, that's kind of, that's my translation, basically, of what's yeah. really going on in the user's mind. The cracking is not salad. And, and actually, that, that's, <laughs> those examples come from uh, that session I talked about uh, in London that I did. Yeah. In, in the section to try to keep people from using jargon so much and to try to be more clear, uh, the brain processes text 
and uh, much slower than it processes shapes and colors right. and things. Right. So yeah, you, you're, you're really hurting the user when you put up stuff. Number one, that's a whole lot of text. Number two, that they really are not going to understand. Uh, they're just yeah. going to click that thing and go on. So I, I, that takes me back to an, an actual, a real, a real, uh, happening or that, that happened to, gosh, this was probably six, five, six years ago when I was observing a user that was on the phone with people to arrange shipping of things, transportation yeah. of things. And he got to the end of his conversation and I'm jacked in. I'm listening to both sides and he gets to the end and he hits the return key five times in a row. Mm. And I said, why are you doing that? He said, because five things are going to come up that I don't want to read. Well, Somebody really understanding their user and how they do their jobs would never put five things up to read on every single time that that, that a customer was serviced. That's just yeah. that's just nonsense. Enough that that person is pre doing it. I mean, that's how often it's happened. Yeah, that they're literally pre doing it. So yeah, th th that that was that was wasting people's time instead of uh instead of helping them. Uh, let's see what we got there. Oh, um, yeah, there's a good one from, from Pandora that I put up not long ago. Okay. Because they redesigned the app. And this is another case, Richard, of it was fine the way it was. It yeah. was fine. <laughs> yeah. So now they, 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 they're trying to be cool with this. Okay. So they, they now offer these options. This is the Windows 10 Pandora app. They, they have crowd faves. Well, I don't, I mean, I have my own idea about music, so I don't care about that. Discovery. What does that mean? Deep cuts. What does that mean? I mean, what I've discovered is that every one of those things will change the music to something completely different. <laughs> and I have no idea what that does to my Pandora preferences. Yeah. <laughs> which I have built up since 2005. Right. And you value that far more than exploring their new features. Far, far more. I, there's no <laughs> undo, whatever. There's just, it was, it, it just was an insane design that I don't know. Maybe they've got users that this made sense to, but I'm a long time Pandora user. It number one doesn't make that much sense to me. And when I did discover what it does, it doesn't do anything I want and it does things I don't want. You get a question like on a scale of one to 10, how edgy and hip would you like to be right now? Yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> and, and of course, that's been a problem in design as long as we've been alive is that yeah. some designers are trying to draw attention to themselves. We talked about that earlier. Mm -hmm. They're trying to do things just to appear cool. And I, I kind of get that in the commercial space. I, I do. I think that, that it's misguided in most cases, but I, I kind of get it. But in the business space, I, I've long said that one of the most dangerous phrases in the industry is, wouldn't it be cool if? <laughs> if, if you hear somebody say that in a session working on business software, that is just a, they might as well have just waved a red flag over their head. Right. Because what they're about to propose is probably not a good idea. Yeah. It's almost guaranteed not a good idea. Uh, I'm pretty sure Kraken is not salad is my new tag. <laughs> That's so good. Yeah, I'm, keep, I, I'm keeping that. Yeah. I'd like you to comment on your experiences with Visual Studio 2019 when your license expired. Uh, you posted something on Twitter about that. Yeah. Well, here's the deal. 
I don't really know how to apportion blame between the Visual Studio team and the Windows team on this. Yeah. But I guess I should, I don't know, I guess to build a drama, I'll talk about it. I'm going into Visual Studio to do some work. Yep. And it says your license is expired. We, we all get that. And I press the button to renew a license and cannot renew license at this time. Yeah. Okay. Wait five minutes. Cannot renew license at this time. Is the service down? And so I spent like half an hour trying to figure out what the problem is. And eventually happened to stumble across the fact that there is a pending Windows update. Mm. And as soon as the update was allowed to, to proceed and, and reboot the system and start Visual Studio back up, it's fine. Mm. But that is not the only thing I've seen that acts wonky when there is a pending Windows update. And yeah. as developers, we kind of know what the story is, don't we? Some things have been changed out and maybe, you know, some there are connections to services that aren't there anymore or there's just all kinds of reasons why that might be the case. Well, the, but they need to take a better, better job of, of taking that into account, I think. And, and of course, the short answer was reboot the machine, which is unfortunate, but that should have been the message. Right. Hey, this is not available right now. You might be able to fix this by rebooting your machine. Rebooting machine, exactly. The message, the message didn't help me understand what I needed to do. And yeah. again, that's an area where they don't invest enough effort to try to give you an understanding of what the problem is to point you in the right direction to fix it. Well, here's a question. Billy, you build Windows software. I've built a lot of Windows software. So has Richard. Have you ever seen uh, an exposed API to check whether uh, a, a reboot is pending? I have not. I haven't either. That's a good question. And I'd have to do some research to see if there is one because I could see that being a useful. useful thing in, in many of my clients' packages when they do, particularly when they do uh, commercial software. Right. To know that a as a way of guiding the user to the, to the right thing. Now, I've seen installation packages that when they have finished the installation say a reboot is required, you want to do this now or later because they're the, the ones that did the installation. But, but we need an API to be able to check to see whether updates need to be applied before we can move on. I agree. That would be great. Mm. Yeah. But yeah, the general area of, of, of errors that come up in, in Visual Studio and in just trying to do other things. Well, see, I, I feel for the Visual Studio team. I do because they're trying to m manage an exponentially inc increasing complexity curve here. Yeah. We've gone basically from DLL hell to version hell to dependency hell. Mm -hmm. That's, <laughs> that's where we are today. Yeah. That, that I, I've had multiple apps in visual studio that I developed and worked fine, but now some version changes, Visual Studio or Windows or some package, some NuGet package. And now it won't build anymore. And the error message is just incomprehensible. It doesn't give me any, any, and I try things and I finally, in several cases, have given up and gone back and started a new solution, new project, and just kind of transferred everything over because there's something deep down in the generated code or something that just isn't right. And, and how am I ever going to find out what that is? And I, guys, I, I worry that this is a serious vulnerability to us as an industry and as a profession hmm. that, uh, I mean, to give you an example, I was, I was working on XAML Islands last week mm -hmm. 
And I created a project to kind of uh, what I was interested in is getting the camera API in UWP to work because there is no camera API in WPF. So I'm going through this incredibly detailed set of steps to set up a, a solution that, that's got the ability to do a XAML island. I messed it up twice. The, the error message didn't, didn't make any sense to me. I Googled it and found, well, basically the idea was go back and start again and do it right this time and not, not overlook some minor detail. And, and, and so I finally did finish it. But my, my problem with it is this. Now, if I, if the client uses that and something goes wrong because one of those version changes of things, now I have no confidence that anybody can fix it. Not even me. Yeah. Right. And that's a risk that I'm not prepared to put in their hands. Yeah. And so that, that's what really bothers me. It reminds me of that meme that you uh, tweeted last September. Why programmers like cooking? You peel the carrot, you chop the carrot, you put the carrot in the stew. You don't suddenly find out that your peeler is several versions behind and they drop support for carrots in 4.3. That's the nature of the world we're in. And, and I can, I feel for the people in it because I work with developers so much. I don't I mean, I do get exposed to this personally because I still still write code, but I don't get exposed to it that much because I spend two thirds of my time on design now. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's, it's such a, uh, it looks like a crisis to me in terms of getting to the point where the amount of time we have to use to get just to get something out is is yeah. so high and the and the value for it it has no shelf life because yeah. people things happen that just obsolete it so quickly and we're also seeing i think some significant demand for alternatives cuz you think of all of the the things that are trying to launch as new platforms particularly for multi-platform development and we have blazor and we have Flutter and, and we have the Uno platform and we have mm -hmm. low code platforms like OutSystems and Coney. And there's, I, I've got a list. There's about 10 of these companies that these, these products that are built to try to change the shape of how we do development. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they wouldn't be investing all those millions in those packages if they didn't think there was a lot of demand for them. Yeah. So I, I think I don't know how it will turn out. I don't know which which of these will succeed, if any of them. I've had my own vision for how we ought to develop software in a cloud based world for several years. You guys may remember me talking about it at a keynote at Visual Studio in uh, Orlando in 2013, mm -hmm. late 2013, yeah. where I started talking about some of the visions I had. And, and we're seeing some of the pieces of it kind of come together, but we still have, have a long way to go. But I feel like we're on a cusp right now where what we have is just unstable and unsustainable. And it, it, and that hurts me because I don't like doing work for my clients that I don't have the confidence is going to deliver value over time. I, I like innovation. I love innovation. I love Blazor, for example. It makes me more productive than I've ever been on the web. But what I don't uh, agree with is, you know, things that you come to rely on, tools that you rely on that work really, really well, and everybody loves them. And then, you know, some new employee comes along or some, you know, they have to put their mark on it and change it. And so, it, and by changing it, they screw it up for everybody who now has to learn some new way to do the same thing they've already been doing with no new features, right? And so, there's a certain value in leaving it the f 
alone. <laughs> it is not broken, and people understand it. Yeah. Hey, Billy, where do you fall with the whole power platform thing? Well, the power platform has improved a lot over the last three years. When I first began looking at it, it really, I, I couldn't recommend anybody to really make any major investment in it unless they happen to be on Dynamics and wanted to kind of create some things to the side of it. Mm-hmm. So, so they've come quite a long ways. I, I, I still don't see it as, as broadly applicable a package or a product platform as Microsoft obviously does, but you know, that, that's their job to promote it, but it certainly fits in that category that I talked about of all these platforms that are presenting a different way to do things. And I, right. I, it, it's got the potential to develop if they do a better job of data dictionary and metadata and things like that. Um, it, it's, it's got the potential to be a, a pretty good business based uh, application development platform. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I'm, I need to take another look at it at some point. You know, anything that just produces for the browser doesn't light me up as much as other new things, but, but I'm, I'm, I understand that circumstances alter cases. So I, I think it's, a, I think it's worth a look on people to see what it does, its advantages and disadvantages and see whether or not it fits a particular, a particular team's needs. And it, it's certainly been my, my radar has been what's the new VB recognizing, you know, when we think about the nineties VB, that was what makes, data on forms development painless, like the basic business apps that we that we churn out by the ton uh, that have decent UX around them, you know, that follow common metaphors so people can learn them quickly, use them quickly, like low barrier to entry creation, low barrier of entry uh, maintenance, but also generates a new generation developers. Because I think the Microsoft stack in general is pretty hostile to novice developers. It, yeah, it is. And it also has another, especially the power platform, and, and to the extent all of Microsoft's platforms have a, a flaw that they don't do a good job of, of targeting multi-device, multi-platform, multi-operating system. And that's pretty much just the world we live in now. Right. Uh, well, I'm certainly on the UX side. Like the Power Apps does a decent job of it works on the desktop, works on the tablet, works on the phone. I think they're more phone first. Like the desktop stuff's not that cool. They is kind of almost like our comment at the beginning of the show. It's like, well, that's a lot of real estate you're using on my desktop for not a lot of information. Yeah. That, but it, you know, it's kind of a mobile first world too, in a lot of respects. And I think that there's opportunity in the next year or two to become fairly proficient and understanding of all of those different platforms Mm. And to sort of serve up some ability to help guide people through them. Um, and, and there are other aspects of them. Um, for example, you look at those platforms and you go, okay, what cloud providers do they work with? Do they really work with all the ones they claim to? Uh, right. Because yeah. some of them kind of are, are really practically centered on just one cloud provider. And now you've got to pretty much take that one. And so there yeah. are, there are all kinds of interesting aspects of this. It's just a more complex world. So yes, what's the new VB, but man, all the things that it's got to do to become a, a, a default chosen platform for a large majority of people. It, yeah. It's got to, it's got to do a lot more than VB ever did. You know, Billy and I were talking before the, before we started recording and, one of the things that I've always said about the success of VB is you had a monoculture, Windows, right? You had p- 
pixel-based graphics in the operating system, and you had pixel-based graphics in the designer. And you, everybody was cool with Battleship Gray. We just wanted to get our data forms done. And and so because you have that pixel-based designer, you can do all of that stuff like moving buttons around. My button isn't going to move. It's going to stay right there, you know, and I'll, and I'll figure out how big it's going to be because, you know, everybody's got the same monitors and stuff. We don't have to worry about that. Like all of these constraints, you remember Mark Seaman, Constraints Liberate. We had all yeah. these constraints, but they were all sort of the, all the planets aligned and everybody was happy with those constraints and they made it, made us focus on the software and not the platform. And I think that's probably one of the biggest reasons why VB was so successful. Yeah. I don't, I, for me, the main thing that made VB successful was I needed to build a Windows app. And I didn't like crashing windows. <laughs> right? like it just, that was the oh, thing. You're right? no fun. Before that, you literally hung windows every time you screwed up. Well, if you're doing and when that went away, our productivity was so much higher. It didn't matter if the software wasn't that good. Yeah. Like the dev cycle was so fast compared yeah. to any other way to build this thing that everybody wanted. Well, VB also had something that uh, it's a lesson that these newer platforms need to take to heart. VB had an escape hatch. If you just couldn't make it do what you wanted to do because it wasn't built in, you could drop right. out and do some Windows API programming to get around that. Yeah. Yes, you could. And, and, and they- some of these platforms don't really – have not really thought through um, the, uh, the the escape hatch thing. I won't name any of them by name. But- when it's one of the things that I've been paying attention with on the Power App side is that, hey, there's following standard call practices. You can build in backend pieces as a regular .NET dev and work with Power Apps. Like they're not isolated from us. Yeah. And that, that's very important. There's one of, one of the major platforms that I have looked at. And then in many respects, I think is good. Just doesn't have that escape hatch. If you mm-hmm. can't do it within their platform, it's just like, okay, you're, out well, of luck. you're stuck. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. that and that necessarily puts a ceiling on what kind of apps you're going to build with that with that particular product. I, I also think that experienced folks, like if you're an enterprise architect trying to figure out am I going to support this tool within the organization in a meaningful way, you're watching for those hatches. And if you don't have them, you're not you, there are no go. You just you can't go there. Yeah, because it's because we're going to spend a bunch of money. We're going to go down this path and we're going to hit some critical walls. You know, and we're not, we're not ever getting back to this uniform client world anymore. And there's no product I want to look at right now that I'm, I'm willing to accept that doesn't cover the platforms that my customers have. It is, a, it is Android and iOS and Windows. Like that's just reality. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's where we are. It feels like the end of a show, guys. Well, a fun one anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't we always have fun? I, I kind of oh, do. Yeah. Definitely. But I, I really appreciate the ROI conversation. Just this, hey, you know, don't build stuff for the sake of building stuff. And when you're choosing things, it's like, where are the returns on this stuff? And it's one of the reasons I'm paying attention to these other stacks because the ROI of .NET dev is pretty well known. Mm-hmm. And there, for certain circumstances, there are more efficient ways. And sometimes the best way to save money is just by not trying to fix something that already works. Yeah, <laughs> just don't do it. And, uh, you know, there's so much else. I, I, gosh, I could just talk all day. The, the, mm-hmm. the, for example, I've the facilitation aspects of getting software out. I've been, I've been doing a fair amount of work on that. So um, maybe we'll visit again in a few months and take on an entirely new set of, of yeah. topics. That sounds good, Billy. Thanks a lot for uh, talking to us again. I enjoyed it. All right. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. 
.NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a...